腓立比书四章四节，你们要靠主常常喜乐。我在说你们要喜乐，但叫众人知道你们灿烂的心。主已经尽了，应当一无挂虑，只要凡事急着祷告、祈求和感谢，将你们所要的告诉上帝。上帝所赐。出人意外的平安，便在基督耶稣里保守你们的心怀意念。Philippians four verses four to seven. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is the word of Lord for us, and thank be to God. As the、uh, young folks make their way down, I'll just introduce myself first. My name's Chris.、Um, been living in China for about 19 years, Beijing, 11 of those. I have、uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to be able to share God's word with Capital on a few occasions, and really looking forward to this morning as we finish out our series on Philippians with Chapter Four. So this series of joy, no matter what.、Now、let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message of joy that we get、uh, from the hand of Paul in the book of Philippians, and we ask that、um, you would speak through me today to help tie this all together, and that you would help this church stand firm in the Lord, help us to experience your joy and to pour that joy out into the world, no matter what. We pray in Christ's victorious name. Amen. So this chapter begins with the word "therefore," one of the Apostle Paul's very favorite words. When Paul, in his letters, gives his audience a "therefore," there's usually a whole lot behind it. In fact, here at Capital Community Church, we have just had four sermons worth of、uh, "here's why" before going into this chapter four, this big "therefore." So today, we're going to draw out some of the themes we've seen from Philippians one through three. Um, that we've had drawn out for us by Ian, by John, Mark, and Ken, on this theme of joy, no matter what. So Paul's big therefore is this: stand firm in the Lord. And this command is not just some abstract theological treatise. It's it's addressed to brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. So this command to stand firm, it's not just this sort of logical progression of like, well, okay, here's what. God has done in Christ in the gospel, and so here's what you ought to be doing. No, it's oh, my dear friends, I'm rooting for you. Come on, let's do this. Let's do this together. And then he gets really specific. Conflict between church members is very often where the rubber of the gospel meets the road of life. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. And the, the word "entreat" here is interesting. It's the verb form of the word Jesus uses in John 14 as he's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
the paraclete. Okay, that's often translated as counselor or helper, advocate, comforter. And here Paul narrows down from what we heard before about Christ. Christ being in very nature God who emptied himself, became a servant obedient to death on a cross. He narrows down from the knowing of knowing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, even rejoicing in them and experiencing Christ's resurrection power and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead and seeing everything as manure in comparison with knowing Christ. And he narrows down to two sisters in the Lord. I counsel them to agree. Literally, I counsel them to think the same thing in the Lord. Now, back in chapter 2, as Paul was preparing to launch into this poetic hymn of praise to Christ, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul counseled the Philippians. He said, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, complete my joy so that you are in agreement. That same word there. Think the same thing. Now, this is not so that all of you have the very same opinion about everything. One, that's impossible. Two, that would be really boring. But thinking this, having the same love, united in spirit, having one purpose, having this kind of mind together, their purpose is worshiping the living God and advancing his kingdom through the gospel. And Paul had gone on in chapter two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I can't help but think that this is where these two women, women who had labored side by side with Paul, with others, having the same purpose, this is where they needed to check themselves. Euodia needed to ask Euodia, am I acting or thinking or speaking out of selfish ambition here? Am I thinking too highly of myself or too lowly of Sintiki? Sintiki might need to ask Sintiki, how might I look out for the interests of Euodia? And this is where you can pause and ask yourself, in what way was some brother or sister in this church or, or in some other fellowship, am I thinking of myself too highly or am I not thinking about their needs and only my own needs? Our grounds for reconciliation is not just in what God has done, but it's what he's doing and will do. Paul describes all these brothers and sisters as people whose names are in the book of life. We are all in this together, and we are always going to be together. We need to live like it now. Our time here until Jesus returns is our apprenticeship for the coming kingdom. So let's practice living in peace with one another now because we always will. And there's great reward in doing so now. And this wouldn't be the book of Philippians if Paul didn't again say, rejoice. And here he may have been thinking as he wrote, okay, I know I said finally rejoice a while back, but I'm going to say it again. And this joy can flow out into the world around us as this word here, epikes. The word Paul, word Paul uses here, it can be translated as gentleness or reasonableness. And this first struck me as a bit odd. Okay, I mean, isn't reasonableness a little more related to logic, thinking, being prudent? 
gentleness, isn't that more of an emotional disposition? A kind of holding back of anger, holding back our strength for some other purpose. But as I thought about its opposite, I was struck by how many in my home country might perceive of Christians as if Paul had wrote to them, let your vitriol be known among all people. Or let your furrowed brow be seen by all. Or may you shout so loud that no one can hear anything else. On the other hand, some Christians might act as if Paul had written, let your sentimentalism be known to all people. Ignore the world and its problems in your happy, holy huddle. Well, it's neither of these. It's reasonableness and gentleness. Christians can be clear thinking. We can speak with moral authority on important matters in our world. And we can be a counterexample of living in a different way, just as they did in the early church. Christians can also do it gently, showing respect to all people who are created in the image of God, and even listening and learning in the process. So our grounds for, for gentleness and reasonableness, Paul goes on, the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. It's the same word as in Mark 2, when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We can be gentle because there's a strength that comes from knowing that it's not just us and all, our, all on our own struggling in this dark world. And gentleness is not weakness. It's a restraining of strength for the benefit of the other. Jesus dealt gently with us in our weakness, in our sin, and we can do the same because he is near. And I love how the Lord is near is sandwiched here, right between let your gentleness be known to everyone and then the classic verses, which we just heard read. Do not be anxious about anything, but in, by everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes as we speak about not being anxious, but instead praying, experiencing the peace of God, I think sometimes we might a little too much present this as some kind of magic formula. Okay, uh, you feel anxious. Well, you need to pray about this, give some thanks. And, and we have right here a promise that God's supernatural peace is going to take over your heart and mind and you have nothing to worry about. Now, God certainly can and sometimes does do that, but this is not a magic formula. So what about when you pray like this and you still feel anxious? I've also heard people say anxiety is a sin. Well, as someone who has dealt with anxiety clinically, getting professional help for it, uh, I want to tell you that telling an anxious person your anxiety is a sin is not helpful. People are all created uniquely, and some of us have a natural disposition toward anxiety. It may be even a default emotion for some of us. Your natural emotional disposition is not sin. It may be a weakness, but you're not sinning by experiencing what your brain is chemically and neurologically doing. But our Father in heaven, he wants to take who we are in our bodily created selves. He wants us to take our bodies and present them to him, both individually and corporately, so that what we do our emotion, with our emotions, that's what matters. What do we do with them? In my anxiety, do I choose to lash out in anger at those around me? It's a good thing I never do that. 
Do I choose to try and numb it with destructive behaviors? That's, that's what can be sin. So Paul tells the Philippians not to be anxious, very likely because they were experiencing some anxiety. There was pressure from Judaizers. They were suffering. Our bodies naturally react with anxiety, but we are called to a supernatural life. And the key to living out a supernatural life is the fact that the Lord is near. He lives in believers and among the church by his spirit, and Jesus himself comes near to us. So prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, it's not just a motion that we, just kind of this motion we go through and then we get this supernatural peace, but prayer can be raw and messy. Prayer can be arguing with God. Look at the Psalms. Look at the prophets. Look at lamentations. Look at Job. Prayer can be agonizing. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in our prayers, we can remember that the Lord, that same Lord that agonized in Gethsemane, he's near. The Lord who was in agony, sweating drops of blood. The Lord who poured himself out to death on a cross and at that time cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's near to us. And the same Paul that wrote of the peace of God that comes from prayer and thanksgiving, he's the same one that wrote in 2 Corinthians of despairing of life itself and of his daily, wait for it, anxiety for all the churches. And so he's telling the Philippians, hey guys, I realize you're probably anxious. This can help because the Lord is near. As I've reflected on dark periods in my life, that were overrun with anxiety, depression. As I've come out of them, as I've been able to deeply connect with people that are going through that darkness, what I've drawn from is being able to tell them, you know, looking back, Jesus was right there with me. Right there with me. I didn't, I didn't know, always know it then, and you probably don't feel it now, but he is. And that's good news. And just like a good sermon has, we get another finally from our joyful apostle. Contemplation can also be an antidote to anxiety and an experience of the God of peace. What we think about and how we think about it, it shapes the kind of person that we become. And Paul here tells the Philippians the kind of things to think about. And it's not just what, not just what you might think of as religious topics. Though, of course, he's already given plenty to think about in terms of who their Lord Jesus is, but all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all creation, and he's in the business of God's new creation, which is to be consummated like chapter three pictures. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await our Savior when heaven comes down to earth and we're given new resurrected bodies like his. And until then, we're to think about how does the Lordship of Jesus? How does the new creation of Jesus play out in every area of life? How do the wonders of scientific discovery speak to the praise of our Creator? How are medical advances saving lives and comforting those in pain? How's God's beauty and creativity reflected in the arts? And how is our brokenness truly reflected in those? And what points toward our brokenness is redemption? Celebrating the bodily grace and strength of an athlete in motion. 
going out on the river road just behind us. We can see this picture. And delighting in seeing a Eurasian hoopoe take flight with this little mohawk on top of its head. Okay, did you guys know that these were around? Uh, it's zebra-striped wings and it's, it's tail feathers. Now, if you don't know what a hoopoe is, my, my kids would all be delighted uh, to talk to you about them. We're kind of avid bird watchers. How is justice and mercy being done in the world around us? How are, the, how are relationships thriving? How are they being healed? Okay, think about these things. This is not to say that we put on blinders and, and try to work ourselves into this naive view of the state of the world like everything's great. But we are to put on the mind of Christ. Now, Paul, he hadn't just given the Philippians a message to be believed, but he gave them an example to be followed. It wasn't do as I say, not as I do. It was do as I say and as I do. Are you living this way? Parents, are you being the kind of person you want your children to be when they grow up? Employers, are you being the kind of person at work that you want those under you to be? Friends, could you say to your friends, live like I do and you'll find it very good. Are you living with the kind of intentionality that will shape the way others live for their good and for the advancement of God's kingdom? And so in, the, in this book, we see this special bond between Paul and the Philippians. And this special bond, uh, in part, it was a result of their generosity that the Philippian church had uh, shown toward him in his ministry. And yet Paul, he had the contentment and he had the freedom that came from knowing Christ so deeply that in his financial need, his relationship with them was not something that he had to manipulate. In verse 12, he said that he's learned the secret of facing all kinds of, of circumstances. And I, as I looked at that Greek word there, it's actually based on the word mysterion, which you see in other places in Paul, mystery. And uh, the, the picture here is that Paul has become like an initiate into this. Uh, in the New Testament, Testament, a mystery, it's something that was hidden but has now been revealed. And in the Greco-Roman world, it was filled with what were called mystery religions. Okay, one, you, you could become an initiate through rituals and, and secret knowledge to kind of become part of the in crowd of a, a certain god or goddess. But Paul, he's, he turns all this on his head as Jesus, his Savior, and the Savior of the whole world, he's let him in. And it's knowing Christ deeply that gives contentment. And this contentment frees us from the manipulative effects that money can have on relationships. Paul said he wasn't even seeking the gift itself, but how that gift would benefit the Philippians. It was, from them, it was an offering to God. They gave to God, God provided for Paul. And I hope this is something that we, as Capital Community Church, will experience that freedom of jo and joy. Whether you know, it's facing this current challenge with our budget, getting it out of crisis, or in your own personal giving toward workers, toward causes, both the giver and the receiver offer themselves to God. God supplies according to his riches in Christ Jesus, and that can free us from manipulation. And a quick word about uh, the verse in the middle of this section, verse 13. This is a favorite verse of many Christian athletes. In fact, in high school, I didn't know the Bible very well, but I did know this one. Uh, there was a poster of it in my high school baseball team's locker room. You know, it had a guy swinging for the fences, and it had 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's well known that Steph Curry, possibly the greatest shooter in the history of the NBA, he uh, wears a bracelet with this verse on it. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Well, I've heard some Christians deride the use of this for athletes. They said, you know, after all, Paul's talking about relying on Christ's strength to face difficult circumstances in his ministry. And he wasn't talking about having Christ's strength to hit home runs or hit three-pointers. And it's true that this verse is not some kind of secret formula giving you athletic skill. It doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, God always wants your team to win. And I'm not saying that's the perspective of any particular athlete that I've mentioned. But if you are a Christian and an athlete, you may want to consider what Christ has for you in that aspect of your life. You may consider what is it about your sport that is excellent that is noble or praiseworthy. You may consider how Christ has led you into this, gifted you for it, given you opportunity in it, and how you can reflect him in your playing and your practice, and how you can reflect him as you encounter challenges in it, failure in it. How can you share him with your teammates? And this really isn't just for sports. This is for your workplace, your neighborhood, your involvement in the arts or civic clubs or whatever. Be content with who you are in Christ and live out you're calling in him, what he's called you to with his strength. So try to fit that onto a bracelet. I got a baseball game this afternoon, so maybe I'll think about it. And then we come to the end of Paul's letter. It's easy just to kind of skim through the end of Paul's letters and think, well, Paul's just kind of saying bye here. Uh, and, or so-and-so says, hey. And we might miss some things if we just kind of skim over it. But in the end of Philippians, this hits me like a haymaker. Who does Paul say says hi? Especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's household. Ever since Caesar Augustus, who was emperor when Jesus was born, the Caesars had set themselves up as gods to be worshipped. And it was Christians' refusal to worship Caesar that led to much of their persecution at the hands of the Romans, that had labeled them as traitors. It was the Caesars that sought to conquer the world through the sword, and bring what they called the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. But the Messiah, the suffering servant, prophesied of in the Old Testament and remembered in the New, brought a different kind of kingdom near at hand. He gave Pax, or peace, but not as the world gives. For Paul, the cross was where the dark powers and the world empires of what he called this present age, were defeated by what Paul called the age to come, the powers of the age to come. And so for Paul, it was no surprise that as the power of the age to come, the power of the new creation, had invaded what the dominion of darkness was still desperately clinging to, that there was going to be clash. There was going to be suffering. And for Paul, that was an assurance that he was right where God wanted him to be. And that was how he could have joy in his suffering. And he encouraged the Philippians to shine in this darkness in chapter 2. The light had shone in the darkness in Rome, such that the saints included those of Caesar's household. Paul had written in chapter 2, Do everything without grumbling or arguing that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly 
to the word of life. Joy, no matter what. And I'll leave you with a picture of stars among darkness. Frodo and Sam, two little hobbits, tasked with carrying the ring of power deep into Mordor, the land of shadow, to the only place it could be destroyed. And this ring had the power to bring the entire world under darkness. And Frodo and Sam felt very little hope that their mission would actually succeed. The Dark Lord and his armies were too powerful. And yet they pressed on through this dark land. And I'll read from it. Now you go to sleep first, Mr. Frodo, Sam said. It's getting dark again. I reckon this day is nearly over. Frodo sighed and was asleep nearly before the words were spoken. Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand, and there he sat silent until deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Ephelduach, in the west night, in the west, the night sky was dim and pale. And there, peeping among the cloud rack, above a, above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up, out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself beside Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. Suffering with joy and hope together, no matter what. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your light shines beyond the reach of, of what any darkness could, could hope to overcome. And we thank you that in your light and your beauty, you did not remain far off and removed from us, but you came down through your Son. Your Son came down into this darkness, lived among us, gave himself as a servant a servant obedient to death, even death on a cross. As we embrace that reality, please help us experience his joy together, no matter what. And it's in his name we ask. Amen.